pray together. Jesus, all, all these things we've declared about you, uh, you are more. You are greater. Um, and so we come to you as a people in need of the freedom that you bring, in need of grace and mercy that's greater than our sin, in need of hope. So bring, bring these things to us, Jesus, now by your spirit and your word, we pray. Amen. Well, let me introduce you to uh, Queen Victoria. She was Queen of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland back in the late 1800s. And uh, she reigned for 63 years, longer than that of any of her predecessors. And uh, that era is known as the Victorian era. Um, Tremendous political, scientific, military change, expansion of the British Empire during that time. But Queen Victoria once attended a service in St. Paul's Cathedral and listened to a sermon that interested her. And afterwards, she asks her chaplain this question. Can one be absolutely sure in this life of eternal safety? Can one be absolutely sure in this life of eternal safety? And her chaplain answered that he knew no way that one could be absolutely sure. How would you answer that question? If one of your kids or somebody at work said, can I be sure of eternal safety? How would, you, how would you answer that? Well, let me tell you how the Apostle John would answer that. Look in your Bibles at 1 John 5, verse 13. He says, I write these things. He's wrapping up his book. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know that you have eternal life. And the Apostle John is telling us here, we can know. We can have assurance. We can have confidence that we have eternal life, or as Queen Victoria would have put it, we have eternal safety. Um, How can we know? John has laid out in his book Three major tests or marks of someone who is in relationship with God that will carry them into eternity with God. First, there's the doctrinal or the belief test. The question that goes with it is, do I believe that Jesus came in the flesh as the Christ, the only Son of God? John wrote about it in chapter 2. He said, who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. The belief test. Do you believe these things to be true about Jesus? Secondly is the moral or or the ethical test. Some people call it the obedience test. Do I increasingly obey God? Does that mark my life? John wrote about it in chapter 3. He says, little children, let no one deceive you. 
Whoever practices righteousness is, is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Do I increasingly obey God? And the last mark or test of a, of a follower of Jesus with eternal life is this, the social or the relational test, um, the love test, you could call it. Do I increasingly love the people of God? Do I, do I find myself with a growing love for other Christians? Does that, that describe me? John wrote about it this way in chapter 3. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So John is telling us that if these things increasingly mark us, um, then, then as his readers, we can know that we have eternal life. And his intent here is to assure Christians of this truth, not to make us nervous about it. He's assuring us. So if these three things mark you, then rejoice, okay? Eternal life is promised to you, okay? It's yours. Um, it's a sure promise of God. And that, of course, raises the question, what if they don't? What if they don't mark me? What if I answered those questions and I said, no, those, that's not me? Um, then just know that today, God is extending the invitation of eternal life to you can be yours. Um, it can be yours. Um, the first place is to believe in Jesus, to trust in Jesus. And that's where it all starts with the question, do you believe Jesus came in the flesh as the very Son of God to be your sin bearer and your Savior? And that's how eternal life comes to us, through faith in Jesus. Now, when John talks about eternal life, he means more than a really long lifespan, okay? It's more than, more than that. That's part of it, but there's more than that. At the center of this forever life lies a relationship with God. You can know God. That's how Jesus defines eternal life. Um, back in John chapter 17, Jesus says, this is eternal life as he's praying to his Father, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That is eternal life. When John talks about eternal life, that's what he's talking about. To delight in the company of God forever. To know God and enjoy his company forever. So yesterday, I took a group of our um, leaders to uh, Duke University, to the gardens, and we spent half a day in prayer together. And... The gardens are an awesome place uh, to go do that practice. So we went over there yesterday, and I, had, I was very mindful that I needed to spend some time with Jesus. That was, that was why I was there. I needed to sit and enjoy the company of my Savior. So when I want to do that, one of the places I love to go is Revelation chapter 1. 
And it describes Jesus in an extraordinary way. And I just want you to listen to it and think about the fact that this is the God you get to know now and for eternity. Listen to this. John is writing to the seven churches that are in Asia. He says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. If you drop down just a little bit, he describes a vision he has of Jesus this way. He says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. And that's our Savior, okay? That awesome, mystical, mysterious, beautiful, compelling vision. You can know him. Many of you do know him, and you can enjoy his company now and forever. That's what it means to have eternal life. Okay. You can be assured, John says, of knowing this God forever and ever. So this is the most important thing in the world, right? Do you know God? Do you have eternal life with him? And if you aren't sure, then you shouldn't leave this place today without at least the resolve to settle this issue in a timely way because it's the most important thing in the world. It is. John says you can know this. You can know that you have eternal life with God. And that assurance pours into two other really remarkable assurances that he's going to write about. The first one involves confidence in prayer. Look at verse 14. He says, this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Now, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask. And God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So, we read those first two verses, verses 14 and 15, 
and we're thinking, this is awesome. And then we read the next two verses, verses 16 and 17, the part about the sin to death and not to death and don't pray for these guys, pray for those guys. And we think, this is confusing. Um, so, so don't let the confusing rob you of the awesome, okay? Um, don't, don't let it do that to you. So first, let's talk about the awesome, right? Those first two verses are absolutely beautiful. Could you back up one screen for me, Park? This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we ask of him. What a beautiful, beautiful promise about prayer. It's not some isolated promise. John records words of Jesus about this frequently in the Gospel of John. Here's some examples. John 14, whatever you ask in my name, Jesus says, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. A couple verses later in John 15, verse 7, if you abide in me, Jesus says, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. A couple of verses later, Jesus says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. A little bit farther down, John 16, truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. I think Jesus wants to have a great confidence in prayer. Now, that's awesome, right? The idea that whatever we ask in prayer, God grants to us. Um, And you're thinking, uh, there's a little catch. I heard a catch. I I heard a footnote. It's what I ask in Jesus' name. It's, It's if I abide in him. In our passage, it says... He answers prayers if we pray them according to his will. There's a catch. Of course there's a catch, right? Would you want God to grant your requests if they were outside of his will? Really? Would you want God to grant you things that were outside of his will? I mean, if God is supremely loving towards all that he has made, especially his people, and he is, remember 1 John 4, God is love, right? God is love. And if he's all-wise and all-knowing, and he is, Paul writes about it and he says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. If that's true about God, would you really want him to grant you something that you asked for that was outside of his will? Wouldn't anything outside of his good and perfect will be lesser? Be like second best? And honestly, we're probably flattering ourselves if we say it's second best. Because outside of the will of God in Scripture, that's the realm of darkness and sin. 
You don't want God to grant you requests that are outside of his will. So the promise is awesome. God will hear our prayers and grant our requests. And the condition is awesome too. It's only according to his good and perfect will. He will grant us nothing less. Okay. So, so we should pray, right? We should like be praying monsters, shouldn't we? We should just be praying all over everybody, all the time, with glad, expectant hearts. We ought to just be praying, praying more than we do because God is using our prayers in, in ways that we do not and cannot know. This is, we're probing a mystery here. Ace Collins encourages us in prayer. He writes about it. He says, in the winter of 2007, a close friend of mine was felled by not one but two brain aneurysms. For weeks, she lingered on life support, growing weaker each day, and as her condition deteriorated, her children were called in to say their goodbyes, and her church prepared a funeral. And then, Linda suddenly snapped out of her coma. And as she came to, she looked over at her husband and, and she asked, where is everybody else? And he said, uh, they only allow one of us in at a time uh, in the ICU. There's, there's no one else here, Linda. And she said, no, I heard them. They were all speaking at the same time. And there were hundreds of them. Some of them I knew and others I didn't. But they were all around me. They were here. Linda's husband assured her that these people had never been in the ICU. And like many, he thought she must have been hallucinating. Some people said, well, maybe she hurt some angels. Um, but Ace writes, he says, the real answer is probably much closer to home. He says, a few, a few days after her miraculous recovery, Linda discovered that a large prayer chain had been created to pray for her. And this group had been formed when news of her condition was sent out to local churches, and then it had spread to other groups throughout the region. And with, within days, Linda's name had been placed on hundreds of prayer lists and written in scores of prayer logs. And for weeks, thousands were praying for her each day. Her miraculous recovery convinced Linda of two things. The voices she heard were of the people who had been praying for her. And those prayers had pulled her back from death's door. So, these first two verses are awesome encouragement to pray. Okay? We should pray. Right? We sh if this is true, we should pray lots. And we should expect God to hear our requests that accord with his will and grant them. We're like walking around expecting answers to our prayers when we pray because of these two verses. It's awesome. Now, about the confusing part. Look, look with me at verse 16. If anyone sees his brother, he's given his huge promise about prayer, right? Now he's going to give a specific example, kind of what he has his focus set on. He says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To, say, uh, to those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. 
I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. All righty then. So John says there are sins that lead to death and sins that don't lead to death. And we should pray for someone committing the one, but not so much the other, so that we can spare a brother from death and it will give him life. But if they're a brother, don't they already have life? Um, isn't that what he just said in the awesome part? We can be sure about eternal life. So, any questions? Is that, is that really clear? If it's clear, we're just going to move on. Go to the next part. I was so hoping John would give me a pass on the last part of the book. Give me an easy passage. I'm going to have a words with John one day. Um... So there's lot, honestly, there's lots of different angles that people have taken on these closing verses. Let me just share with you the angle that makes the most sense to me. Uh, first off, what is, what is this sin that leads to death? What has John got on his mind behind that phrase? And uh, I would say that the most likely thing is he's thinking about the sin that was committed by those false teachers that he's been combating throughout the book, right? That's what's at the front of his mind. That's a sin that leads to death. What was their sin? They denied that Jesus was the Christ, that he come in the flesh. They denied Christ in such a way that they could then freely disobey him. And they didn't love those he loved most, his people, his church. I think that's, that's what he's thinking about. In a sense, these people flunked all three tests, right? These false teachers, they failed all the tests. Um, so it seems here that this brother, as John calls him, may not be a brother after all. John uses the expression of brother to refer to these false teachers in kind of a backhanded way in chapter 3, verse 10. Look at what he says there. He says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So in a backhanded way, he's kind of saying they're like brothers who don't love their brothers, who are of the devil. So if these brothers are ensnared in a sin, but it is short of that hard-hearted, Christ-denying rebellion of the false teachers, then, then he's saying this is a prayer God loves to answer. The prayer for those who are ensnared in sin. He's saying your prayer affects other people. Your prayer releases God's mercy into their lives in a way that releases them from sin and brings eternal life to them. So if we're right, and what he says here about the brother, he's talking more like a neighbor. How important is it that you are praying faithfully for your neighbors who are caught in sin? Are you praying for your neighbors? You see how, how it matters? Um, so... Another question that comes up is, so is John saying then that we shouldn't pray for people 
who, who have committed the sin that leads to death? People maybe who are really far from God, who are really hard-hearted? Um, I, don't, I don't think that's what John means here. Um, if you notice, he does not command them not to pray for those who are committing those death-bringing sins. He just doesn't apply the promise in the same way. The promise is if they're, if they're in a sin that doesn't lead to death, that is a sin that can be repented of, he says, God will a- answer that request and he'll bring them life. But there's a sin, he says, that leads to death, and he's saying, I'm not talking about that, is essentially what he's saying here. It's not where the promise applies. Professor Craig Blomberg addresses this question in a way that's helpful. He says, of course, if we knew who those people were who had so hardened their hearts that they had committed what Jesus calls blasphemy against the Spirit so that God gives them over to their depravity, we could stop praying for them knowing it was pointless. He says, but we don't have such knowledge, and when we guess as to who such people might be, we often guess wrongly. So we dare never stop praying for anyone, no matter how much it seems like they might be sinning unto death. He says, deathbed conversions remain surprisingly common even today, including by some of the once most hardened atheists. So, PAC fans, all Tar Heel fans are not reprobate and beyond, you know, beyond the grace of the gospel. Pray for them, Right? <laughs> And vice versa. You know, we put people in categories and we think, uh, never, it couldn't happen there. Not true. You don't know that. You never know that. Always pray. Always pray. I sure can't tell you when someone has embraced this sin, this rebellious, Christ-denying sin that leads to death irrevocably. So we should always pray. Exclude no neighbors from your prayers. So again, even in the confusing part, there's this awesome incentive to pray. Your prayers will be used by God to rescue folks from the snares of sin and bring them life. And when John uses life here, he's, using, he's talking about eternal life. That's, that's, what, that's what he means. And this confidence in prayer, don't miss that it flows from the first confidence we talked about. Of having eternal life. That we know we have eternal life. That is, we're assured of our relationship with God forever and always. See, because when we have eternal life, we have relationship with God. Jesus says we become like sons and daughters. We're adopted. And we talk to our Father. And he loves to answer our requests. Because we're sure of our position, our relationship with God, we can be sure that he hears our requests. He's our Father, as Jesus taught us to pray, our Father. So so even the confusing part here is awesome. Okay, This is an awesome assurance about your prayers and how God loves to use them, promises to use them. But that's not all. There's another awesome confidence that flows from our assurance of eternal life that we, that we truly know God. Uh, look at verses 18 and 19 with me. 
We know, okay, this is something we know. We know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we're from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So John gives another confidence here. It's another assurance that we will not fall into sin like those false teachers who went out from them. And thereby they knew they were never of them. Okay. So the emphasis here, I think, is not so much that we're not going to keep continuing in sin, though that's probably part of it, as it is we're not going to fall into the sin of the false teachers. We're not going to deny Christ that's going to lead to a disobedient and loveless life. We're not. Because the one born of God, which is most likely a reference to Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, the one born of God, he protects us. Jesus himself protects us from falling into that Christ-denying state. We're kept safe by Jesus. The evil one cannot touch us in that way. We are ultimately kept safe. It reminds me of what Jesus uh, said about Peter, right? He says, in Luke 22, he says to Peter, calls him Simon, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. He might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. If there's one thing we know, it's that the prayers of Jesus do not fail, right? So Jesus protected Peter from that ultimate failure. Peter denied Jesus three times. But he turned again and came back to Christ. He protected Peter from the ultimate failure of his faith. It's as though he placed a limit on Satan. And Satan could not touch him in that forever denying kind of way. And John is saying something very similar to us. The one born of God, he keeps us safe. And the evil one cannot touch us in this way. This This is a great comfort. We cannot fall from our faith. Jesus keeps us there. Eternal life is kept sure for us because Jesus protects us from the evil one. Glory be to Christ who keeps us safe. And it's not on me, okay? It's not on you. Because our track record is not good enough, right? We're kept safe in the faith Principally, not principally because of our own efforts, for we will surely fall, but because of Jesus' work on our behalf. There's a beautiful passage from John 10. Jesus says, my sheep, hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And if that's not enough assurance, he says, My Father, 
who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. It's like we got two hands, the Son and the Father are holding us, and no one can snatch us. Paul wrote about it in Romans beautifully. No, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love of Christ never fails. The evil one cannot touch us. Our eternal life is kept sure by Jesus. And so John assures us beyond question that we can know that we have eternal life in Christ and we are kept safe from the evil one because of Jesus. Verse 20, he goes on and he says, we know, we know something else. We know that the Son of God has come and he's given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So John is right back where he started. If you think about it, he's assuring us of eternal life. Assuring us that we really do know God in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who is the true God and is eternal life. And here we have most likely another reference to Jesus as God, the true God. And so John, here he's been reassuring us that because of Jesus, we know that we have eternal life. We know that God hears our prayers and grants our request according to his good and perfect will. We know that God gives sinners life in response to our prayers. We know that we are kept from falling into the sin of denying Christ. We know that we're protected from the evil one. We know that we are from God. We know that the Son has given us knowledge and understanding of God. And we know that Jesus, he's the true God. He's eternal life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. That you may know that you have eternal life. You may know. So let's go back to Queen Victoria's question, right? Queen Victoria. That little incident where she queried her chaplain about eternal safety, it was, um, it was published in the court news. And it came to the notice of a minister named John Townsend. And after reading Queen Victoria's question and the answer she received, he prayed. And then he wrote this, this note to the queen, to her gracious majesty, our beloved Queen Victoria, from one of her most humble subjects. With trembling hands but heart-filled love, and because I know that we can be absolutely sure now for our eternal life in the home that Jesus went to prepare, may I ask your most gracious majesty to read the following passages of scripture? You don't love that? He's asking a queen to get her Bible out. And he suggests John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And he says in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, which says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord 
and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. He said, I sign myself, your servant for Jesus' sake, John Townsend. And John Townsend was not alone in praying about his letter to the queen. He took others into his confidence. They offered up prayer to God in her majesty's behalf. And about two weeks later, John Townsend gets a letter from the queen to John Townsend. I have carefully and prayerfully read the portions of scripture referred to. I believe in the finished work of Christ for me. Trust by God's grace to meet you in that home of which he said, I go to prepare a place for you. Signed, Queen Victoria. And John says, you can know. You can know you have eternal life. You can know that you know God and will know him forever. And so because of that beautiful, supreme truth, that beautiful answer to the most important question in the world, he ends with this little statement. So little children, keep yourself from idols. Okay? Really, it's like, it's like, really? Idols? You get this, and you're going to mess with idols? And when he thinks about idols, he's, again, at the forefront of his mind is what these false teachers are building. They're building a false religion that doesn't really believe who Jesus is and doesn't really change their life at all to where they loved other people and obeyed Christ. He's saying that's idolatry. That's not real God. That's fake. Um, let me quote one of my favorite commentators, Professor Merkel. He says, he says, those who claim to be Christians but do not believe the truth concerning Jesus, do not live a righteous life in obeying God's command, and do not love others, are in danger of idol worship. This is an idol because they have created a religion that is false. This is a religion that man has created and that not of the apostolic faith. This is nothing short of idolatry. To embrace a form of Christianity that allows one to deny the truth about Jesus, not live a godly life, not love others, is to create an idol. And that is something all Christians must constantly guard against. So this morning, have you settled into a faith where Jesus for you is less than he really is? not Lord and King and Savior. He's something less. And you know that because it doesn't really matter if you obey him. And you don't love the people that he loves most in the world, his church. Are you sure that you have eternal life? John says you can be sure. And he so wants us to be sure. So pray, pray with me now as we close. So some, some awesome promises, God. I guess the question is, will we believe them? Like 
cling to them, trust them, let them affect us. Will we believe them? So grant us faith to believe, whether, whether we're at the place where we believe that you are, Jesus, who you said you are, the very Son of God, come in the flesh to bear the sins of the world. Help us believe that. Lord, I pray for those who are struggling with that right now, for whom you are a good teacher and a religious leader, but you're less than that. I pray you grant them faith to believe now. And uh, Lord, I pray you'd help us see that if this is who you are, then surely in love we should obey you. Surely in love we should love those that you love, especially your people, especially those sitting next to us. So... Lord, have your way with us as you would, based on the teaching of this book that we have given ourselves to in these recent weeks. Have mercy upon us and grant us faith to believe in your son, we pray. Amen.